like any powerful technology. It's going to have benefits, it's going to have costs, but I think being overly focused on, on the cost just misses a key part of the conversation. Where does software end and AI begin, right? It's really a continuum where you start with technology and then it's digital technology, and then it's computers and software, and then it's AI. And so, well, what about computers? They gave us the internet. GeekWire is on it. It's a great thing. But then there's these other things, right, that are bad. So you could ask the same question about any broadly applicable technology. Software, internet, so many bad things and so many good things. Welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Coming up later, we will circle back with AI leader Oren Etzioni to learn about his newly launched nonprofit initiative to combat AI deepfakes. But first, I got a chance this week to talk with a longtime software developer for Apple platforms, Ken Case, co-founder and CEO of Seattle-based Omni Group, which makes productivity apps for Mac, iPhone, and iPad, and just released a new version of its OmniPlan project management software for the newly launched Apple Vision Pro. So you've been there throughout the years for decades now you're an apple shop you couldn't really call yourself a mac shop because <laughs> you are more than a mac shop right right but you're an apple shop when you look at what some people would consider virtual reality and of course apple is calling it spatial computing and microsoft would call it mixed reality just as an example but you wouldn't necessarily think that a productivity app would be there on day one what went into your decision to develop for the vision pro Sure. Yeah. And, you know, there are some Apple platforms that we have skipped along the way because they didn't feel like productivity platforms. A very obvious example would be the Apple TV. Um, but, you know, another example might be CarPlay or the iPod when it came out that, you know, some people were developing apps for those. And, and that was that was not where we were because it didn't make sense for us. But the Apple Vision Pro it has a lot of different use cases. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, a lot of people I think are familiar with the use case around entertainment and, uh, you know, can imagine what that would be like to, uh, to use the Apple Vision Pro to watch movies in your, in your couch or whatever. But I guess viewed it from the lens of a productivity software developer, it's time for our apps to escape the boundaries of these limited screens that we have in front of us. You know, even a 32-inch screen or a 40-inch screen if you want on your desk or, you know, these more portable screens that we carry around either in our pockets or in our bags like the iPad. That's a very different picture from an environment where you can take any window and position it anywhere you want in your room and you can make it as large as you want. You can make it the size of a wall and so on. Right, to give you a little background, I grew up in Seattle. My dad worked for Boeing his entire career after the Air Force. Uh, and, you know, he was working on doing industrial engineering work, which is basically scheduling, uh, doing project planning. And so uh, he would work on you know, planning the 747 or the stage one of the Saturn V booster when Boeing was doing that work. So he would bring home these Gantt charts, which were these long rolls of paper that had, um, <laughs> you know, the different tasks that needed to get done all very carefully sort of lined up before that happens, this has to be done or reach this stage of the project and so on. And, you know, uh, for a large project uh, like 747, those things could be very, very long, you know, 30 feet long or more. And you would kind of scroll through it. And he would spread it out across the living room floor, 
Um, and then, you know, he would be sitting here annotating it with a uh, pencil and bringing it up onto the coffee table where he could do some writing and then, you know, move it around a little bit more and, and trying to analyze it that way. Obviously, that's not how people do so much project planning anymore that, I mean, I think people will sometimes still print them out that way um, after they plan to do the planning work itself on the computer. And the computer has been a huge boon to, I think, most project schedulers. Uh, it just makes life so much easier to be able to make a change and then have that change ripple throughout the rest of the timeline without having to go use your pencil to mark it all up. The benefit there of the Apple Vision Pro is you get to not be limited to the size of a screen. You get to go ahead and put that window anywhere in space, make it as big as you want. You can have other windows of other content that are also you know, placed nearby, in front, back, wherever. Getting rid of that constraint of the screen size is just what really attracted me to this platform. Obviously, there are virtual computing apps, virtual desktop apps for things like the MetaQuest. And I've tried them before. And, you know, it can feel a little disjointed. What is it from your experience about what Apple has done with the Vision Pro that makes it work for productivity and things that would otherwise be desktop applications? I think part of what makes it work from my perspective is that Apple didn't just give a completely empty canvas that then every developer is expected to fill all the space on. Uh, so, you know, most of the VR environments, when you run a VR application, you are in control of the entire environment. Um, I should note that the one platform that I've really have not tried beyond just a few minutes at, you know, at a friend's home is the HoloLens. But with, you know, many of the others, you launch an app, all of the other apps go away, and you're now in that app and you're working with that app. But what Apple has designed with Vision OS is really thinking about how do you have multiple apps in an environment together? How do they work together? How do they fit in with the space that you are operating in, the physical space that you're in? What happens if there are other people in the space? Things like if there are other people in the space, they can kind of tell whether or not you're looking at them. Your attention communicates through the outside screen that they see. And meanwhile, you can tell when they're looking at you because it will cut a hole if you, if you happen to be in a, an environment where you've tuned out the physical space that you're in. It will actually interrupt that and uh, you'll see you know, somebody's face peeking through when they start looking at you. And so you can then have a conversation with somebody and not feel like you're completely isolated in the way that so many of these others work. Will you have your hands on the physical keyboard of your actual Mac while you're using the Vision Pro and using a mouse? How will that work? I expect that that is how I will use the Vision Pro most of the time. It's with a keyboard and mouse and my Mac screen projected up into, you know, a much larger screen than, than anything I could fit on my desk. I'm sure other people will use the Vision Pro differently, and we don't want to require that from people who are using our apps. Like if you're, if you're browsing a project plan, you can certainly open the plan easily and, you know, scroll around and so on. You can do that with your fingers. But... Everything that I'm hearing from, you know, reviews and so on is that's not the best interaction model for actually trying to type a lot of content. And my job involves a lot of typing. <laughs> so I fully expect to have a keyboard and mouse. I'll be, uh, you know, using tools that I've been using decades, you know, text editors like Emacs or whatever, just like I've <laughs> been using them all along. And so yep. um, a lot of people will have a different experience. But the way I expect to use it, and, and the way I think most people who are trying to do a lot of productivity work that involves 
a lot of written content will certainly involve a keyboard. And you can pair a keyboard directly. It doesn't have to go through a Mac. You can pair a Bluetooth keyboard directly with the Apple Vision Pro and your trackpad with it. Uh, and you have options like using your voice, which you know you can also do on the Mac right now. But on the Vision Pro, if where you're a, a lot more likely to be away from your keyboard, it makes a lot more sense to be doing things like dictation or using voice control to, to manipulate different controls and so on. How would you compare the process of developing for the Apple Vision Pro to developing for the Mac and how much of your code, for example, was reusable? How did the tools compare? I, I am just curious about the developer experience from the perspective of a Mac developer. Sure. So as a Mac, a longtime Mac developer, our most of our Mac code has traditionally been written in um, in the app kit that, that actually was uh, developed on the next platform. So you know that, that's been around since 1989 when we started using it. Uh, none of the app kit work code works on the Apple Vision Pro, just as it doesn't hasn't worked on the iPhone or the iPad or the Apple Watch. Uh, but what Apple did introduce about, was it five years ago, six years ago now, uh, was a new Swift UI interface layer, which is a unified way of developing for the Mac, for the iPad, for the iPhone, for the Apple Watch, for the Apple TV even. So over the past few years, we've been working to rebuild our apps using Swift UI just to make our lives easier because we were already, you know, as noted, we're Apple developers, not just Mac developers. And so our code is running in a lot of places. And rather than maintaining an AppKit code base and then a UI kit code base for the iPhone and iPad, now we can just maintain a Swift UI code base that runs all of those. And that Swift UI code base also works on the Apple Vision Pro. Got it. So relatively seamless, relatively straightforward? Yeah, obviously there are adaptations that, that you need to do then for each platform, but just because the environment itself is different, the screen sizes are different, or the lack of screen is different. You know, some of the big differences when it comes to developing now for the spatial computing environment are, well, first of all, of course, the, the the lack of screen, the ability to have a window, place it anywhere, and have it be any size. The offering system manages the placement uh, automatically, so we don't have to worry very much about that part of that work. But we do have to be ready to adapt to whatever sizes might be, you know, come our way as the user indicates, oh, I would like for this now to be a much smaller window or a much, much larger window. But another aspect is, while you can hook up a trackpad if you wish, the primary mode of interaction is going to be with your eyes and your hands. And so you need to indicate clearly to the user which areas are interactive. Uh, so you need to mark those, have them, they will automatically highlight as part of the system's API for oh, the user is now looking at that, it's interactive, so it now will kind of shine a little bit more. And you know, having that appropriate effect on everything uh, is, of course, something that, that you were not doing on other platforms. <laughs> and then because the Apple Vision Pro is placing windows in your physical space, one of the things that Apple recommends is not to place a bunch of completely opaque windows around people that, you know, that might make them feel a little bit trapped or cut off from the world. So if you've looked at a lot of their screenshots, you'll note that uh, the iPad apps in compatibility mode that you see in an Apple Vision Pro environment are opaque, are completely opaque because that's how iPad apps are designed. But the native apps often have more of a glassy feel to them. You know, you can see uh, light shining through them and on them and so on. And so 
that uh, it's really beautiful for one thing, <laughs> but uh, but it's also a bit more challenging uh, when it comes to interface design because the lighting conditions can vary so much. It's just gonna, you know you don't have light mode and dark mode. You have well, what is the light around you like right now? You know, is the light turned on in your room? Is it turned off? Is it, uh, which direction is it coming from? And all those things affect how your window is lit, and and so what is easy to see, what is harder to see, uh, and so that's also been an interesting design uh, a challenge, I guess, to be thinking about and working through. So a lot of the accent colors that help signal interaction on an iPhone or iPad are no longer relevant on an Apple Vision Pro or, or, or maybe a bad idea because it's just harder to see this dark text on who knows what background or this color text on who knows what background. But instead, now you have the interaction signal of, uh, well, they're glancing at it and it now responded to their glance uh, to let them know, oh, this is the part of the screen that's interactive versus the part that's just reporting something. We haven't talked before, and so maybe you're just always like this, but you seem really excited about this. <laughs> I am really excited about this, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad it goes through. If somebody from 100 years ago were trying to think about what is computing going to be like in, um, in the abstract, and you know what is, what is the ideal computing environment like, I don't think you would necessarily think, oh, it's all about a bunch of screens all over the place, the screens in your pocket, screens on your desk. Um, that it makes more sense to have some sort of content. Sure, you, you need to be able to see it, but just project it in the world around you. And that's the specific technology that is being used to do that today is not as exciting to me as just now having a platform where you've defined what it is you're projecting and how you interact with it. And from there, you know, as the technology improves, we could have something that is not goggles at all. It could be, uh, you know, contacts it could be projections into your eyes it could be some sort of brain interface but whatever it is uh, that you want to interact with things and you need mountain space and you want to be able to do it without carrying a bunch of hardware around and this is a first step toward those future realities yeah i mean it's not the first step right teams have been working on this for 50 years but it's not, but it's the the strongest step that we've seen towards the whole thing being there Ken Case is co-founder and CEO of Omni Group, which just released its OmniPlan project management app for Apple Vision Pro. Learn more at omnigroup.com, that's O-M-N-I group.com, and see the show notes for links to related information and coverage. Next up, AI, politics, and a new attempt to detect and diffuse deepfakes. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. A few weeks ago on the show, we caught up with Oren Etzioni, a University of Washington computer science professor and longtime artificial intelligence specialist, to talk about the latest developments in AI. And he hinted at the time at a secret project in the works. This week, he unveiled a new nonprofit, nonpartisan technology organization, TrueMedia.org, that's developing an AI powered tool to detect AI generated deepfake videos photos, and audio. It's aiming to combat political disinformation in the lead-up to the 2024 election. 
Founded and led by Etzioni with a core group of engineers and advisors, the Seattle-based organization is backed by Uber co-founder Garrett Camp through his camp.org nonprofit foundation. I circled back with Etzioni this week to learn more. True Media organizationally is a nonprofit effort to fight deep fakes in our electoral process. I think that we've learned that democracy has an Achilles heel, and unfortunately, bad actors are using AI to exploit that Achilles heel in a, in a very problematic way. And when I looked at it for the first time, and that was, I, th- I think we even talked about this, that was at the meeting that I was honored to have with President Biden and his team in San Francisco in the summer. So this came up, this wasn't what I was focused on. And I just realized how potentially horrific this can be in a narrowly divided uh, election of the kind that we have. I felt like misinformation is kind of like the weather. Everybody talks about it, but nobody's doing anything about it. As an AI person and a technologist, I asked myself, well, what can we do about it? And so True Media, in addition to being nonprofit, nonpartisan, is an organization with the goal to build a tool to hand over to the public in a broadly accessible way, a free tool that allows people to assess and identify deep fakes quickly as they encounter them on social media, and particularly aimed at journalists and influencers. So we don't have the uh, Mark Ruffalo fiasco, right, where he forwarded a fake image of Donald Trump because he thought it was genuine. What can you say about the tool itself, how it will work and when it will launch, the underlying technology, details like that? Absolutely. So as you saw, the website is uh, for people to sign up for the waiting list. We do need to be careful in releasing it so that bad actors don't train their models on our efforts to learn to defeat the best tools. So we're going to be very careful to vet who gets access to it. That said, it's going to launch in Q1. If we wait until November, of course, it's way too late. So we're going to launch it to a set of folks who are on the invitation list in Q1, and we're going to continue to iterate and improve on it in real time, of course, as the space changes, right? This is an arms race. This is a very dynamic space. New models are coming out. New deep fakes are coming up, and we need to adapt. A second point, which isn't even yet uh, mentioned on the website, is we're not just thinking about the tool. We're also thinking about very hard about data. So it turns out that there are public resources that contain deep fakes for the academic research community. The problem with them is that they're way out of date. Some of them are for 2017, and that might as well be from the last ice age or uh, even from 2021, right? New, new models are coming up all the time. So we're building, we're asking people to submit deep fakes that they've encountered, political deep fakes in particular. And then we're building a, a, a benchmark that we're going to use to constantly grade ourselves and others on how well are we doing at assessing and detecting political deep fakes. Is the 
typical scenario going to be somebody sees a piece of media or hears or views a piece of media, wonders if it's real or not, uploads it to your site and gets an assessment? That's exactly right. So they're going to get an assessment as well as an explanation. Here's why we think it's potentially fake. We think this is assessed as as reasonable because it did not contain any of these uh, types of issues. So, but yeah, it's very much, there is no Google for all of social media, right? Which includes TikTok, which includes Discord, which includes all these private uh, channels in, in different places. So uh, we're relying on eagle-eyed uh, reporters and individuals, fact-checkers, or part of, of various communities to, when they come across this, to uh, bring it to us, and then we will run our uh, suite of algorithms, both working with partners as well as our own algorithms and models that come from the research community. But the interaction is exactly what you said. Is the determination going to be binary? Yes, it's fake. No, it's not. Or would it be more of a range and a probability? I wish that it could be binary. It's going to be an assessment with a confidence and a justification. How difficult is this as a technical problem and how unique do you feel your solution will be? So it's an extremely difficult technical problem because we're talking about audio, we're talking about video, we're talking about images, and we're talking about models that are being improved all the time. Microsoft released one, Google released an improved version, and uh, and so on and so on. We're also talking about a huge set of techniques on the other side. So you can modify a real image, you can substitute the audio, you can uh, synthesize video, and there are websites to do this. You don't even have to be technical, unfortunately, to make use of these tools. There's other people who make it available to really to anybody. I'm very worried about a kind of disinformation terrorism where um, it used to be that this was only something that state actors could do. Now, unfortunately, anybody, anybody could do it. So it's extremely hard technical problem. As far as the quality of our tool, there are various tools that are available to three-letter agencies, to major corporations, and so on. But I'm confident that ours is going to be the best broadly accessible tool because it's essentially the only game in town. Again, there are some academic projects, there's some some other projects, but uh, with the coverage that we're talking about and with being inclusive, uh, hopefully working with all the partners who are available in the space, I think we're going to come out of the gate with both a unique offering, but a very, very strong one. Okay, but what about AI and Taylor Swift? That's coming up next. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Orrin, we've seen, even in just the past week, the emergence of 
these explicit deep fakes involving Taylor Swift. Obviously, you're focused on the implications for democracy, but are there potential ways to be able to use your tool beyond politics? In theory, absolutely. The problem, as you say, is broader and the tool is broader because of our focus and because of the costs, right? These algorithms, when you run it using our tool, there's a cost, both because running these models are expensive, you're running them on top of video. We have partners that are uh, money-making, right? We're making it free, but we appropriately pay them for uh, their costs and, the, and their profit margin. So that's not our goal. And, and we will have various ways to limit folks. This is a highly targeted effort. For me, looking at what's happened over the past week and thinking about the implications for politics, it's come into focus just how much of a threat this is. And so your timing is really interesting. And one of the questions that keeps popping into my head is, and you've used the phrase before, you can't put the AI genie back in the bottle, but I guess I keep wondering why was the genie let out if this was going to be one of the consequences? What's your take on that? The succinct answer is that despite these potential risks and actual damage that has already occurred and, and that unfortunately will occur, you have to consider the huge potential benefits. So we also have climate change where we need carbon sequestration. We also have the next pandemic after COVID. We also have superbugs. We have so many problems that humanity is facing where the use of technology and particularly AI technology, right, as it's being used in these fields, could be the thing that saves humanity from a huge, huge calamity. And so I am still very focused on the potential benefits that occur. And, and progress is being made. This isn't just an empty conversation. Moderna used AI in uh, developing their COVID vaccine. We are constantly seeing advances in medicine, in chemistry, and so on, alpha fold and things like that that are driven by the latest AI technologies. So I, I think it's going to be like any powerful technology. It's going to have benefits, it's going to have costs. But I think being overly focused on, on the cost just misses a key part of the conversation. And again, to me, and of course, we've talked about this as well, where does software end and AI begin, right? It's really a continuum where you start with technology and then there's digital technology and then it's computers and software and then it's AI. And so, well, what about computers? They gave us the internet. Isn't that a great thing? GeekWire uh, is on it. It's a great thing. But then there's these other things, right, that are bad. So you could ask the same question about any broadly applicable technology. Software, internet, so many bad things and so many good things. Understood. And especially when you start talking about AI writ large, let alone technology writ large, I get what you're saying. That said, you look at Dolly 3 and some of the things that have come out and Microsoft saying it's not able to identify whether those Taylor Swift images are from its own software or not. I don't mean to be going back to Taylor Swift like CBS going back up to this luxury box, but it's kind of top of mind right now. It makes me wonder whether there couldn't have been, with those specific tools where that risk was really high, some kind of effort to stop them from being released. 
Right. But and there's a very specific answer to that. The answer is yes, right? So generally speaking, when you look at any technology, whether it's uh, social networks, right, we anticipated some great things. They've also created some very negative things or generally speaking, right, I mean, you could just go on and on with the list of could this have been designed better? Could this have launched better? Of course. And specifically, case in point, we are now seeing provenance and watermarking. And so the ability to, at least from these bona fide sources like Google, Microsoft, and others, to be able to tell. And so why didn't they put that in before they launched, right? So, so I think that's a very legitimate point. And every company has to balance this question, right? Do you launch early and then there's some issues or do you launch later uh, and clear these things? It's very visible to us, right, with Dolly 3 and so on. But let's talk about transportation technology. Should we have launched cars without airbags? Should we have launched cars without uh, seatbelts? At what point does the benefit outweigh the cost? Or is it really part of the natural cycle of technology that we launch something and then we iterate on it to make it better? And we learn how to make it better by seeing how people use it. So we can always do better, but it is kind of endemic here. Back to politics, we had an example just recently that I'm sure you were very tuned into, which was the robocall, the fake Joe Biden robocall in New Hampshire, telling New Hampshire residents not to vote. Had true media been available at that point, what would have happened in that scenario? Right. So, so first of all, we are using audio models. So as soon as somebody has a recording of that, when true media is live and they have an account, they could upload it and then uh, determine definitively what, what hopes. We haven't run that example, but determine definitively this is a fake and here is the basis for, for that determination. So there, the, from a technical point of view, the, there can be no, no doubt, or sorry, that, no doubt is too strong. There's the technical assessment to back up the common sense assessment of like, what? Uh, this, this makes no sense. There's a whole separate issue around how quickly do you get that from true media? And then how successfully do you propagate this information to people? And again, since we're just getting started with limited resources, we have to rely on, on partners in the media, in the electoral system to do that, right? We don't have a way to follow up each of those robocalls with a call from us. Hey, you know that call you just got? It's fake, right? I, I'd, love to, I'd love to do that. We, we don't have those, those resources. But I do think that it is important to have an unbiased, nonpartisan, nonprofit-making, authoritative voice that says, we're running the state-of-the-art technology, and here's our assessment. And let me just give you another quick example. So in Minnesota, they passed this law that I think it's 90 days before the elections, you can't use deep fix of the candidates and so on. But how do they enforce that, right, without a strong determination that this is a deep fix? So again, we can be available to folks to, to make that determination with the best available tools. And obviously, you've got a stake in the ground in terms of the November election. Do you see this persisting beyond that? Yes. So 
I feel like we need to prove ourselves. And this is a way that this is quite different from AI too, right? We're not writing papers here. We have a very targeted effort with a very metric outcome, right? So at the end of the day, we can ask uh, two questions. What was the accuracy of our assessments in the context of this election cycle? And to what an extent did it have an impact? It's kind of an intellectual curiosity, or maybe a few fact checkers use it, but we didn't have an impact, then that's not what we're aiming for. We're aiming, well, we can't solve the problem or wave a magic wand. We want to have a genuine impact. We want to be able to be used by key people, as we said, in the media and in the electoral process to make a difference. If we're successful with that, then of course the problem is not going away. So we plan to continue. And if we fail, nothing sharpens the mind more than an ambitious metric goal. If we fail, then we'd have to, to reconsider. Right? Was it, uh, do we know, did we learn the appropriate lesson or maybe this is too hard for right now? But I am laser focused on the elections and the, the lead up to the election, election process. And like you said, every day there's another thing. There was the robocall. There was this great headline in the New York Times about Davos uh, where they said uh, they expected people to talk about Gaza and Ukraine, but everybody's talking about deep fakes. And so um, it's timely, but it's also late in the sense that uh, I, I wish we'd gotten started a year ago because there's so much to do. Thanks, Oren. Good luck. All right. Take care. Oren Etzioni is a University of Washington professor, Madrona Venture Partner, former CEO of the Allen Institute for AI, and the founder of the newly launched True Media nonpartisan nonprofit technology organization. Learn more at truemedia.org and see the show notes for links to related information and coverage. Thanks for listening. Audio editing this week by Kurt Milton. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.